Hi, I'm Mike Livermore, and I'm joined by Deshen Moodley, who's an associate professor in the Department of Computer Science at the University of Cape Town. Hi, Deshen. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Mike. Uh, thank you for uh, interviewing me. Yeah, so it's a real pleasure to have you. So we'll be talking today uh, about Deshen's work in the area of artificial intelligence, which relates very closely to the themes of intelligence and artificial intelligence uh, that are um, uh, the focus of the ICA4. So one of the ways that I've uh, kind of been starting these podcasts is just to ask uh, folks how they got into the, the fields of interest. So what, what brought you to computer science and then specifically to this domain of knowledge representation and the relationship between knowledge representation and machine learning that seems to be the focus of much of your work? It started probably at a very young age. Uh, I think I was in primary school uh, when, uh, and this was quite a while back, uh, uh, when uh, I heard of these things called computers and was very fascinated by, by you know, the, the idea of a machine that can be programmed to do, uh, you know, very, very different things. So, uh, so while I was in primary school, I saved up some, some of my pocket money and, um, uh, and then, uh, uh, went and bought myself a, I think at that time it was called a VIC-20, Commodore VIC-20. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, that was my first computer and I taught myself programming. Uh, and this was always fascinating to, to, to write these things which allowed you to control the machine. And at that point it was almost as if even simple programs could make a computer, uh, give the, a computer uh, the appearance of an intelligent machine. Um, so it wasn't just the idea of the automating, it was the idea of creating something that can mimic uh, intelligence and that I found very fascinating. Uh, so needless to say, I did com studied computer science uh, and there was no choice between anything else. Uh, and this was at the very early days of uh, before this was um, more pervasive. Uh, and then in my undergraduate year, in my final undergraduate year in 1993, mm -hmm. I was lucky to do a course in artificial intelligence. Um, and this uh, was almost like w the thing that interested me was, uh, you know, the automation and the appearance of intelligence. And now there was this kind of, su this, these techniques to almost supercharge my computer programs, the ones that I was writing. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, that's where the interest in artificial intelligence came about and so so then I did a master's degree uh, my master's research was in uh, using neural networks for um, character recognition and mm -hmm. then uh, I more recently after doing a stint of working in industry uh, I followed that up with a PhD on the more knowledge representation uh, aspects and agent-based uh, computing yeah, great. So it's a really uh, it's a really interesting path and interesting career. So um, maybe before we get into the to the substance, I, one question that just pops up based on on that uh, kind of journey that you've been on is the relationship between industry and academia in in the field of computer science. Did you did you find that your time in industry uh, was was useful from a research perspective? Did you um, come across uh, questions or ideas that you find interesting found interesting that informs your current research? Or was that a, a bit of a side path and then you, you return to academia and really see those things as, as quite distinct from each other? 
so so the when I was in industry um, AI wasn't really I think uh, widely used in industry at that point so uh, my master's research which was done around 1995 uh, I didn't really uh, build any AI solutions in industry uh, but the the uh, actually doing the research I think uh, really helped me to I think really improved my problem solving uh, uh, coming up with new ideas um, so my last job was in an internet startup company uh, and uh, there there was you, you know the innovation aspects uh, where you know in order to be in those in that space you really needed to have this kind of uh, out-of-the-box thinking and uh, kind of innovative approach to uh, to technology and I think that really helped when I transitioned back to doing the PhD, um, I, I actually really struggled to get back into the research space hmm. uh, because in industry, it was always uh, project driven uh, with, with tangibles, uh, tangible deliverables in the short term. And here there was this kind of unstructured, uh, you know, really blue sky exploratory space uh, and, and actually doing that transition I think uh, uh, where the outputs were was writing papers rather than actual products, uh, I, I really struggled with that. Mm. Uh, but moving into the academic space, there was also, I took my teaching quite seriously and in computer science, there's this whole idea or, or there's a professional aspect of it to produce software engineers and uh, teaching programming and industry skills uh, or preparing our, the graduates for industry, I think the industry experience I could see really helped there. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. And so, so my background's in, in law, and I teach at a law school. And of course, we think of you know a big part of what we're doing is professional development. And in a sense, that is similar in, in engineering programs or a business school or computer science, uh, where folks are really, you know, the institutions are really preparing people for particular career paths, which is very different from a a more traditional academic department like history or philosophy or sociology where the link with a professional career is a little bit uh, more attenuated. Uh, people are learning skills that are relevant, of course, but uh, but it's not inculcating people into a profession. Uh, these are just more more clearly academic disciplines. So that's an, it's, it, it's interesting because I think computer science, in a sense, sits between those two um, domains in the academy, like one professional development, the other one being a more purely academic discipline, because there certainly are people who do computer science in a purely abstract, you know, kind of a, it's not even applied mathematics, it's just a, a branch of mathematics uh, almost. And those folks, I think, of are dis quite distinct from the folks on the more uh, systems engineering, um, you know, software engineering kind of, um, kind of part of the, of the field. Yes, absolutely, Mike. That's uh, I, I I fully agree. So the uh, and in and in fact the uh, the 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 discipline of computer science uh, I find that interesting. So uh, so in South Africa the the system uh, or or the approach to computer science uh, it's uh, very distinct from computer engineering. Uh, so we have uh, they sit in completely different. Uh, we call them faculties. Uh, and I'm not sure in the U.S. whether you have faculties, but uh, so it's closer to mathematics and mm -hmm. uh, uh, a discipline called information systems. And engineering is uh, has a very different philosophy. It's seen as a very different profession. 
and I think this is more aligned with uh, probably the British system, whereas mm. I know in US and I know in, in, in parts of Asia, uh, the computer science and computer engineering are usually run from a joint department. Uh, and it, it gives a very different flavor to, uh, to, to computer science, uh, w you know, depending on which, which way you come at it from. Yeah, no, it's really interesting. And it's funny, or just an interesting feature of how um, we set up institutionally these disciplines ends up having an effect on the actual kind of the production of knowledge and, and kind of the path of different fields. Absolutely. So, so just to kind of get into, actually, I think this relates in a, in a way to some of the themes that I, I picked up from your work is, so one um, that, you, that you seem to have returned to uh, a few times is this distinction between knowledge representation approaches to artificial intelligence and machine learning approaches to artificial intelligence and how uh, these two these two different approaches sometimes are antagonistic towards each other, sometimes can work together in a, in a hybrid form. So maybe just to start to uh, clarify what we're talking about here, what, what is a, uh, so broadly, artificial intelligence is a, is, a, a, is a broad category that includes lots of subcategories. Probably two of the main ones are knowledge representation and machine learning. What is a knowledge representation instantiation of, of artificial intelligence? What is the distinction here? You know, what, what are some of these, these terms for folks who are, who are unfamiliar with them? Okay, so maybe just to, I think the hype, a lot of the hype currently on AI is around mm -hmm. machine learning. And uh, so machine learning, if you look at it as a, uh, a, a sub, sub area of AI, uh, and, and that is uh, probably in, in very simplistic terms, it's building models from historical data. Um, so you, you, you have a, a, a whole, like for example, the um, something like the uh, stock market. If you, you look at the historical performance of a particular share or stock, uh, and then you if you're predicting next day price, you can just uh, take the last 20 years of data and uh, kind of fit a almost a function or a mapping function to it, which if you're given the last 20 days, uh, what will be the, the next day's price? Uh, mm -hmm. And that kind of mapping function is what machine learning is really all about. So it takes historical data and looks at uh, what you want to predict and it sees uh, you know, how the response is from what you put in and what you expect to get out. And then it tries to minimize the error on the predictions. Um, so that's kind of is what we, or, or, or is, is termed bottom-up AI or data-driven mm -hmm. AI. Mm -hmm. The other side is where we, uh, we, we take a different approach and what we say is, well, we're actually not really worried about the data. What we're interested in is about the knowledge. And uh, so we understand this term that we say that humans have knowledge and they observe the world and they make decisions and they interact with the world based on this knowledge. And uh, so in this, from this perspective, which is known as top-down AI, we try and capture expert knowledge. Uh, and the way we do it is one of the common approaches is to use logic. So what we can do is, uh, as, as the simplest kind of logical approach, is if you think of if-then statements. Mm -hmm. So you can capture uh, a whole bunch of if-then statements um, so uh, uh, a very uh, simple example and not getting into the logic side of it 
is that um, uh, if if two if you have two people uh, and then you can call them A and B or uh, whatever the names of the people are and if you say these two people are brothers then you know that they share uh, the same uh, parents and then you can say uh, parents are both a mother and a father and then you can lead on and infer that they have the same mother and the same father as, as just an example of course if you've got a background if you've done any logic uh, you can see that you can actually represent this in uh, simple first order logic or propositional logic uh, mathematically so in that way you can get some information and you can make lots of inferences and that's you know, using that logic uh, approach is uh, uh, one of the key techniques uh, in, in these things. So previously they used to be called expert systems. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so we use this in computer software, uh, you write programs and you embed the expert knowledge into these programs. Mm -hmm. uh, and with the knowledge representation and reasoning approaches or the knowledge based approaches, the idea is to take these kind of rules sometimes called business rules, and you make them explicit in some logical form. And then we can actually look at them and we can see if they're consistent, uh, we can see if the reasoning is consistent, we can see if the reasoning is uh, captures the common uh, way that people reason in some domain, like the le legal domain in which you, you're from. Um, and uh, and that's, that's quite powerful. The uh, the tools, uh, so logic's been around for a while, and computational mm -hmm. logic like that has been, been around for a while. The, on the application side, uh, the most widely used technique is something called ontologies. They're called concept mm -hmm. ontologies. Uh, so you can actually come up with these ontologies which capture key concepts and relationships between the concepts in some domain. And there's lots of medical ontologies, there's legal ontologies, uh, there's uh, ontologies that have come up for um, interpreting uh, financial statements of companies and so forth. So mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of uh, activity on in, on that front. Yeah, this is all this is all very fascinating stuff, and I, I want to return to the question of ontologies and what that means. It's a uh, I think for many people, it's a somewhat confusing term because there's also philosophical ontology, and it's a but but um, uh, but it's a key uh, uh, concept here. But just to um, maybe render some of this concrete, what is a, a maybe the, we could, an example of a of a knowledge representation system or approach or platform or software that one might just a regular person might run across in their in their daily life like are, are there any examples of these kinds of things out um, out in the wild so to speak um, so uh, uh, I, I, so, so at, at the moment uh, I think so it, um, are we using anything on a daily basis um, or just that we, yeah. we might come across ah okay uh, hmm that's a, that's a good question. So so maybe I should uh, 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 probably give you another technique, which I think we, we use. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so um, in between these two approaches is uh, the Bayesian inference. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's something called Bayesian networks and Bayesian decision networks. Mm -hmm. And that for me is more of a knowledge-based approach. Uh, it's, 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 it's not purely logic. It uses what we can call probabilistic knowledge 
um, and we can make uh, inferences from events. Um, and that is widely used in lots of decision support systems in a whole bunch of, so Bayesian networks and um, so uh, using Bayes rules uh, computationally is used in probably almost every decision support system. Uh, it's used, uh, the Bayesian inference is used, for example, in your, in, your, in your GPS, in almost every control system that you use. Hmm. Okay, great. So this is, all right, so, so we, also have, we also have a kind of Bayesian uh, networks and Bayesian inference on the table too. So, so, so maybe again, just for the sake of clarity, I think of this in the, in the legal domain, um, just because it's kind of, na you know, that comes naturally to me as, as a lawyer. And uh, maybe one example of a question would be, um, so tax preparation software, this is quite common in the U.S. I don't know if it's actually as common uh, elsewhere in the world, but the idea is every year we have to prepare our taxes and we submit a form to the government that, uh, you know, kind of explains our situation and, and various uh, features of our lives end up uh, affecting our tax, our, you know, kind of our tax returns. Do we have kids? Are you married? Do you have kids? Do you own your house? You know, what are your local property taxes, et cetera, et cetera. And there's software that you can actually use that's, uh, that exists that's, that's called tax preparation software. It kinda, and so it walks you through a series of questions um, that are derived from the tax code that then, you know, that you answer these questions and ultimately it tells you um, kind of essentially what your, what your taxes are for the year, what information you have to file to the government, and what your tax return might be. Um, that strikes me as an example of a knowledge representation system. Is that a is that a fair characterization? Do you think that that is that a knowledge representation system, or is that something else? Uh, so, so um, I, 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 which parts of it uh, again, Mike? That you. I, I, I guess I'm kind of thinking that it's a series of decision trees, right? Like, are you married? Yes. If yes, then yes. go to this part of the tree. Okay. Yes. Do you have children? If yes, okay. How much? Uh, you know, how old are they? Are they over 18? Then go to this part of the tree. If they're under 18, then go to that part of the tree. Um, you know, have you moved in the last year? If no, then go to this part of the tree. If yes, then fill out more information about, you know, your yes. moving expenses. Um, yes. And all of that information comes from the tax code, right? So some people who are experts in the tax code um, were, worked with software engineers to kind of build this system um, that represents the information that's, that's in, the, in the tax rules. Absolutely. So, so what you've just mentioned is uh, it's knowledge. So, uh, so if someone asks you, uh, how does tax work in the U.S. if you're an individual taxpayer, mm -hmm. uh, then so that uh, you're almost thinking of like a flowchart or, mm -hmm. uh, or, or a decision tree. You're quite right, and uh, that is actually knowledge, but it's uh, captured in a diagram in a diagram form. But and it's can be you can say it's informal. Uh, mm -hmm. Once you take that and you put it into a computer program, then it becomes a bit more formal because it's precise and uh, one can then execute it. Mm -hmm. And if you extract that out, uh, almost as coming up with like let's say if then rules, and you can take an if then rule and make it a logical statement, then you've got a full blown uh, knowledge based system. Uh, and, and that's really useful because what you can do then is you can ask it questions. Mm -hmm. uh, you can say, I'm a taxpayer with these properties, what should I do? And it can give you an answer. Mm 
using that gives you that a definitive answer. That's yeah. it. Yeah. So um, the the I, I like that example because uh, in the same way, uh, I'll give you a similar example on the health side. Is in mm -hmm. the health uh, domain you have these things called clinical protocols or guidelines. Mm -hmm. um, and this is uh, pretty much, uh, and I think these are taken quite seriously, in the health system, uh, they would say that if someone presents with certain symptoms, uh, so let's take something uh, common like uh, the, the influenza, if someone presents at a clinic, uh, a patient goes to a clinic and they have certain symptoms, uh, then you, there's a good chance that they have the common flu. And then there's a certain, um, intervention or treatment that you should mm -hmm. prescribe and that is captured as a kind of standard of how you should treat people with these symptoms um, and I think because of the the legal re repercussions of not treating a patient properly these are then codified in these clinical protocols and guidelines so that if someone does present and you don't do something then there's some liability because now you have to explain why you deviated from the common practice Mm -hmm. uh, and and again, if you computerize that, you starting moving you you start moving towards uh, uh, representing expert knowledge in a computational way, which becomes what I would call a knowledge based system, because now you can ask it questions, you can check its consistency, uh, you can ask it uh, what is the the minimum uh, symptoms you need to be diagnosed with uh, with the common flu and so forth. Yeah, no, there seems, you know, several advantages that could come from that, that translation of that, that expert knowledge and the, the expert know-how into a computational system. One is, right, you can ask it questions, you could evaluate it, right? You could say, is this the right thing? Do we actually like the answers that we're getting here? Um, you can change it quickly, right? So if, if there's new information that comes, um, you know, like we have COVID and um, some of the symptoms of COVID or might overlap with the flu. And so, you know, it might take a long time for clinicians to figure this out or, you know, to publish a research article that people then read and then translate into practice where if they're using software that can just come with an update that, um, you know, that, that diffuses information very rapidly. Uh, and obviously the amount of training that people need you can you can lower the cost, let's say, of, of getting this expertise out into the field. You know, if it, if anyone who can be trained on using the software application can have all of this knowledge that's embedded in the system, rather than like actually getting all that knowledge into their brain, which is a very costly and time-consuming uh, enterprise. Absolutely, and just to to build on that, uh, uh, Mike, the. Uh, uh, it's 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 that and a lot lot more. Uh, so yeah. I can give you an example. Let's suppose that you treat uh, routinely. You've got clinical protocols. Let's say for hundred diff different uh, diagnoses. Mm -hmm. uh, now, what you want to also check, for example, is that what in case the symptoms for flu uh, has common symptoms with twenty other, which is reasonable, mm -hmm. twenty other conditions. Uh, so when you change this, you're making a local change, the repercussion is global because mm -hmm. uh, now it could have a consequence about other diagnoses because mm -hmm. they, you could have two common diagnoses. And now if it's computerized, you can do all of that checking automatically. So what you mm -hmm. could say is if I make this local change to just to the diagnosis for the flu uh, or you know because of COVID, uh, and again, because lots of people thought they had the flu when they actually had right. COVID in the early stages, and that right. was part of the problem. And 
but now because this knowledge is computerized uh, you can in a few seconds you could check consistency and you could actually check all the possible repercussions mm -hmm. and all the possible situations so the kind of testing and the consistency is massive and the 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 uh, the other part is the training because I feel and I, I think we might get into this so I'm not going to say too much about this is one of the big issues for me with AI is um, whether AI is going to promote further uh, inequality mm -hmm. and this kind of uh, there's this area called epistemic uh, injustice mm -hmm. and the idea here is that the very educated like in this case the AI practitioners or the clinicians or the lawyers or the accountants have all this knowledge and there's almost the tendency and I think this might be very might be unconscious and just built into our system to protect this knowledge uh, and the idea with the knowledge based system is all the technology is there for us to make this knowledge explicit which means the access to this knowledge uh, you know does not come with a massive price tag and this kind of protection about knowledge uh, so and, and that's a whole discussion about uh, I think there's a lot of lots of discussion about data at the moment and conversations about that but for me n the same kind of level of discussions are not made about uh, knowledge and especially I think in a in, in, in like for example I'm from South Africa in the developing world uh, people in the rural areas when they see a physician there's a massive power dynamic mm -hmm. that goes on and the language uh, and that is uh, you know in terms of how the diagnosis is is communicated to a person without a formal education uh, it's 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 actually very concerning so mm -hmm. taking that knowledge codifying it and then looking at different ways in which you can present and navigate that knowledge by people without with different educational backgrounds that again opens up a whole whole uh, field okay but yeah. I'll stop there because I'm sure that's something else we can touch on later yeah well that's fascinating I definitely want to return to those issues they are um, obviously very very important and interesting um, just to make sure that we're, we're clear um, with all of our concepts that we've introduced so far so we've got uh, knowledge representation which broadly take advantage of symbolic reasoning or high-level abstract reasoning to relate concepts to each other that come out of expert domains. We have machine learning, uh, which the way I understand it and, and what I take to be uh, from what you've said is you, you start with data, you use very flexible models to identify patterns in those data and make predictions. Um, could be time series data like a stock market. It could be image, image recognition, you know, tell the difference between a dog and a muffin kind of stuff. Um, and then you, you, you put on the table also these Bayesian networks, which uh, exist in uh, kind of a, you, you mentioned in, 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 the, in the context of knowledge representation. So, so maybe we could explain what, what these Bayesian networks are. So what, we could start with Bayesian reasoning very abstractly. So maybe I can just, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the way I think of Bayesian reasoning, um, at least at a high level, is... Um, some system, an agent of some kind, uh, starts with a, a belief about the world and then updates that belief on the basis of evidence using some kind of rule for updating information. So I guess the question is, um, you know, where, where do, what are these Bayesian networks, how are they implemented, and, and where do they fit in this you know, kind of landscape that we've constructed of, of knowledge representation and machine learning? Okay. 
So uh, maybe I'll I'll give an example of a of a Bayesian network. Uh, and again, I'll return to the medical side because we've been we've been talking about it. And the most mm -hmm. famous medical example is uh, 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 so so again the same example. Uh, you go to a physician uh, and you complain about a cough, and that's mm -hmm. a symptom. Mm -hmm. uh, but we know. Uh, let's suppose uh, that in in our world. Uh, uh, a cough could mean that you have a cold. Uh, it, it could also mean that you have uh, tuberculosis, mm -hmm. or it could mean that you have cancer. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, what we can do is uh, we could see, we use conditional probabilities, and what we could say is what is the chances, or what is the probability that someone uh, has uh, uh, tuberculosis that they will be coughing and we can move through that and we can also do the other way uh, uh, what's the chances that if you cough you have uh, the flu and what's the chances if you, you cough and you have tuberculosis and uh, uh, if you cough you have cancer a and now we've got a lot of and I would call this knowledge and it's not just logical statements it's mm -hmm. actually moving towards cause and effect uh, so the link between symptoms and the actual diagnosis. Um, and we could go further because then we could say, well, now you coughed and uh, I also, uh, uh, I, I, I want to rule out tuberculosis. Mm -hmm. And we know that, uh, so now I still think that you possibly could have uh, tuberculosis. Maybe you come from South Africa where we have a high prevalence of tuberculosis and I want to rule this out. So the next step you'd do is maybe say, well, let me send this patient for a, for a chest x-ray. Mm -hmm. And now you get the result of the chest x-ray, and now you, can, you have more information. Uh, and so you can see if it's uh, a negative result in the chest x-ray, you can rule out uh, tuberculosis as your diagnosis. And now you have a greater chance that it's uh, influenza, uh, and all of that, uh, w the example I've just given you, is uh, pretty much uh, formally it can be represented as a Bayesian network. And the Bayesian network is just a graph, uh, so I'm going to use a little bit of technical terms. Sure. It has variables, uh, and the variables in this case could be uh, um, uh, coughing, uh, smoker, uh, the other variables could be um, uh, lung cancer or uh, flu or mm -hmm. uh, tuberculosis and other variables could be uh, chest x-ray which has mm -hmm. could be either positive or not and these things have Would, states. Could these include like demographics like where they're from their age and that kind of thing as well? Absolutely and then you have links between them which are the causal relations and now you can have uh, quite uh, uh, chains of these kind of cause and effect relations. Mm. Um, so what you could say is that you could have a, a, a link from uh, coughing to uh, uh, tuberculosis uh, and then link from tuberculosis to uh, a positive uh, uh, chest x-ray and then what you can say is and those are cause and effect uh, links. Um, mm. Yeah, this is it's, it's very that's very interesting, and you know, in a way, you know, correct me if I'm if I'm wrong if I'm thinking incorrectly about this, but it seems as though 
that's a very parsimonious way um, of describing these relationships. And in theory, I could imagine a knowledge, a, a more traditional, let's say, um, logical, symbolic, logical approach that just says, if the person has a cough, then, <laughs> and they come from, you know, a, a particular area where tuberculosis is common, then send them out for a chest x-ray, right? Could just be a set of rules that you could imagine. But, um, but the Bayesian network sounds as though it's a, it's a more, um, it's a, it's, I mean, in a sense, simplified, or it's an alternative way of, um, of representing these relationships that might be very cumbersome to actually uh, translate into a set of kind of formal logical if-then statements. Uh, yes, and and uh, in fact, uh, uh, one of the uh, I think the, the the key advantages of it is that you don't need to have all the information at hand. I think mm -hmm. that's one key advantage. So, for example, uh, in the Bayesian network, in that structure uh, that I just mentioned, if you don't have the ch chest X-ray, you still get an answer. Uh, what's the probability of this patient mm -hmm. having tuberculosis? Mm -hmm. um, and then when you add that information, it revises that belief, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. it updates your belief. And it's a similar way in which uh, we do this. Uh, but there's something else, which is um, if you think of any uh, diagnostic test. So uh, if you go to the hospital, uh, these diagnostic tests, so they'll either send your uh, uh, something off to a lab for a test or uh, they'll measure your, um, they have tests to, to, to check your sugar and, and all those kinds of things. They, they are not 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. So there is a sensitivity and specificity around it. And these notions are actually Bayesian notions, which mm -hmm. you put into the, and these little probabilities, uh, or like if it's 99% or 98%, the 1% actually, if there's a, a uh, quite a few inferences that are made. It has a knock-on effect, which can actually uh, uh, become quite large later on. So, yep. so the uh, these kind of uh, notions of uh, things that are a little bit uncertain. Uh, there's there's a margin of error, uh, and we make these kinds of uh, decisions. It it gives you these the machinery to formalize all of those things, and and really speaking, as I mentioned uh, in medicine. Uh, all these tests, and in fact, not just in medicine, ev everywhere else, uh, you always have this notion, if I see this, what's the chances of something else mm -hmm. happening? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, I mean, so, so and th I think this is a really illustrative, a nice illustration of the distinction here with machine learning potentially too. So if we, so we, we could imagine the, 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 we need a term for this, but the, um, uh, the kind of formal system uh, knowledge representation through if-then statements, the kind of formal logic, then you can have a, a, so that's one approach. You could have a kind of Bayesian network approach, which is embedding uh, information about causal relationships and probabilities and updating um, uh, assessed probabilities in light of information and the like. And then you could have a, a pure machine learning approach um, to the question of, um, say, uh, applied to this question of diagnostic diagnosis of, of, of patients. So, so let's see if we can play that out. So say we're, what we want to do is make a prediction about whether a person has tuberculosis or not. What would a purely machine learning approach look like to that question? <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a, good, uh, a good scenario. So, so, so the first thing, if you're using the recent techniques, you need, 
you need a lot of data mm. and you need a lot of data uh, in context because uh, the example that I gave you uh, you could create using expert knowledge uh, you could create that without with very little data based on uh, you know the local doctors in a community for example because they mm. they they already have this kind of uh, knowledge in their minds which you can ask them you can engage with them and uh, and get at least the, the way that they think about the world if you're to build a machine learning model uh, there's probably no engagement to the experts you just need lots and lots of data mm -hmm. because what you really want to do is you want to run through lots of data and build a model uh, which kind of uh, uh, or function that that fits the data uh, and if you're using the new deep learning approaches uh, you probably would need many many several uh, or tens of thousands of data points uh, of uh, people who present uh, or patients and whether they had tuberculosis or doesn't have tuberculosis mm -hmm. uh, and then of course all the other conditions and right. and that's there's lots of issues with that um, so one is that uh, let's suppose it, it just so happened that in this community there was very few people that presented with tuberculosis it means the machine learning model would have very, uh, the, its model for tuberculosis or diagnosing tuberculosis would be very weak. Uh, and then all of a sudden, there was, just for some reason, there was an outbreak of tuberculosis, which is highly contagious, and now the model can't deal with it. Uh, but So there's, there's human knowledge about how to deal with it, but the machine learning model is, because it hasn't seen this in the past, it can't deal with it. Um, yeah, so there's, it's, it's, it's certainly possible, uh, but uh, it's, and then of course, uh, the other issue is that when the machine learning model gives you an answer, uh, it's not going to explain to you uh, how it arrived at that answer, mm -hmm. uh, whereas the Bayesian network can give you a detailed explanation about which pieces of expert knowledge it used to arrive at the answer. Yeah, right, so there's this issue of explainability too, which I, which I'll, Hope uh, we can find time to return to that because uh, obviously it's a major, um, a major uh, concept and, and normative kind of discussion in this debate. Just to, um, <laughs> uh, if I play devil's advocate for a moment, I don't know if it's a fully devil's advocate, but I, I'd be curious if you, um, uh, what your take on with, uh, this would be is, you know, imagine that there's a, a, a startup um, in the tuberculosis, specifically in the, in the business of tuberculosis diag diagnosis, and they want to take a, a purely machine learning approach. And, what, and they have a lot of data, so they, they work with a handful of hospitals in, in say, New York City and L.A. and Paris and, or, you know, or, and maybe places with lots of tuberculosis cases as well. And what they do is they record the sound. They have a, a recording device, and they record the sound of, of the cough, of the patient's cough where they would just record the whole visit, and in the course of the visit, they, um, the recording device picks up the cough. And then they run that sound file through a, you know, a sophisticated you know, deep neural network kind of system, and they have labeled data, you know, diagnosed with tuberculosis or not diagnosed with tuberculosis. And on the basis of all of that, they then uh, extract out a, you know, say a fairly accurate tool that could be used that um, you know that can one, that 
if you feed in an audio file of a person's cough, it can give a fairly accurate prediction of whether someone has tuberculosis or not. Now, of course, that device doesn't exist, but that seems like the kind of thing that would be very difficult to instantiate into a knowledge representation or a, um, even a Bayesian network, but a pure machine learning approach might be, at least in theory, could, could be used for, for that, kind of, um, that kind of exercise. Absolutely. Fully, fully agree. Um, so, uh, so my take on this is, uh, and please don't get me wrong, uh, uh, the, in fact, it, the, the scenario you, you presented is a very good example of how machine learning uh, can do things that I think is going to be, it's, it's very difficult to do in knowledge representation and reasoning. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's so many reasons for that. So, so even if they did, did not have, uh, and, and again, uh, j just some clarity here, there are many, many good machine learning models that work without lots of data. It's just mm -hmm. the deep learning ones don't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And these ha have been used, they've been around for 20 or 30 years. Uh, so support vector machines. There's a whole right. bunch of other ones. Random they can forests. Work. Random right. forests, exactly. Uh, and, and these are overlooked now because of the incredible performance that we've, we've got with, uh, uh, with the deep uh, neural networks. Uh, so what you said is absolutely true because we, we, don't even, we might not even have the language to talk about different types of coughs uh, or to get the granularity needed mm -hmm. uh, because this is almost like a continuous sound problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, there's a whole bunch of applications that you could, what, what you've said is a class of applications uh, for sound recognition uh, or sound classification. Mm -hmm. And uh, those kinds of systems, we don't even understand it. We don't even have the classes of the language or the, uh, to, to explain the different uh, uh, nuances of that. And the machine learning is excellent with that because it can pick up nuances that we probably don't even recognize explicitly. We can't even codify it. So, uh, so for me, uh, the uh, we've spoken about these two branches of AI, but what we have not spoken about is hybrid AI systems. Mm -hmm. And really, that's where I think we should be spending a lot of effort because both these techniques uh, have have quite serious strengths and can solve many many problems. Uh, so these hybrid systems where, so imagine if you had that system you mentioned plus mm -hmm. the knowledge base system and you put them together and you integrate them, uh, the, you, you'd have a far richer system. Yeah, no, that's, and, and it would have, and it would have lots of advantages, including as you, as you mentioned, so, so in a sense, what would be, it's interesting to think about what the advantage of the system would be. One is the machine learning component of the, the cough recognition software, which presumably wouldn't be perfect, it would just be one diagnostic tool, uh, would then get integrated into the knowledge representation system or the Bayesian network. So just like we send out a chest um, exam, um, we can record people's coughs. And actually the chest exam itself could, a machine learning algorithm could be used there too with respect to like an you know, image processing or something like that. Um, and then that whatever information or whatever prediction is made you on the chest x-ray or the cough then gets integrated back into the Bayesian network. The probabilities of a tuberculosis diagnosis are then updated. And, um, and, and that's just kind of, it's a, so the Bayesian network in a way sounds like, again, I'm kind of just 
talking this through with you, a way of integrating information that would otherwise be diffuse and, and maybe even directing the exploration or what kind of information would be most useful to then um, you know, form the most uh, well-founded beliefs. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think, and uh, so I would, I would term such a system, uh, the term that I use to describe it, and again, this is an overloaded term, I would call it a cognitive system. Mm. And uh, it, it's, it's um, uh, and, and to add a component to that is beside that kind of iterative loop between these top-down and bottom-up AI techniques, uh, which feed off each other and uh, kind of um, uh, improve, uh, uh, you know, the, e e uh, you know, each, each kind of system or subsystem. Uh, it also, there's another component, which is decision support, because at the end of the day, uh, you want to integrate this into a decision support system uh, or even a decision making system and now you've got all the information you know uh, where there's risk uh, you can now weigh up all of these things and you can introduce may possibly a utility function uh, and introduce uh, a, a proper decision making system or decision support system mm -hmm. yeah no it's it's fascinating it, it, and it it does seem like this is at least one potential uh, avenue for, for lots of interesting progress. Um, to get to the, just to return us to some of the um, kind of more societal level questions that, um, you know, that all of this technology implicates, um, the notion of epistemic quality and what, what, the, what the effects are there. I mean, that's a, it's a fascinating idea. And if you think about the modern economy, you know, what distinguishes the most, techn the most advanced, the, the richest, economies in the world from from the rest of the world is not so much you know that, that we that the rich economies have lots of fancy machines or something like that it's about knowledge right it's about know-how and um, and and the ability of technology to equalize uh, people's access to to knowledge and know-how seems potentially very transformative now in your experience, have 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 we realized some of that potential, or is that or is that mostly on the horizon as a as a possibility? So, uh, so for me, I think uh, uh, it's it's one of the areas that I think I'm quite passionate about. Is uh, and and this is why I make sure in any conversations that I have with anyone, including in my teaching, I always bring up the knowledge based stuff and uh, you know make sure that that gets um, enough sufficient airtime. Uh, you know, given all the hype uh, and uh, the interest on the machine learning side. And for me, that is uh, an area that I think is very, very um, uh, under-investigated, under-resourced, uh, because there, is, there, is, um, there isn't the quick wins that you get with the other, what I call, cool AI. Uh, which is the machine learning uh, aspects? Yeah, fashionable AI. Yes, yes, yes. So, uh, so, so I'll, uh, maybe I'll give you an example, and and maybe this is uh, 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 it's it's closer to home for you, is on the legal side. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so, so there's knowledge. I mean, you, there's lots of knowledge there about. Uh, I, I I don't know enough about the legal side, but uh, it's. It's amazing that there isn't been more effort. So I know there's there's quite a few efforts on legal ontologies, uh, mm -hmm. but 
the um, the knowledge about the law is something that can be codified. It can be you can come up with a with a with a uh, an ontology, uh, and and some of the rules can be encoded. It's possible. There are techniques. It's it's definitely. I think we could could have done this or started with this process about ten years ago. It is a long process. It's tedious, but you could make a lot of that knowledge explicit and accessible to a person without a legal background. And it's such an important aspect because uh, our our lives are influenced by this. And and the fact that we haven't done it, or we're not spending a lot of resources, and it's not high on our priority, uh, it, it's for me that's a social issue. There's, it's not a technological issue. Uh, and the same with the health, because if you had some of the knowledge, it means then you empower individuals who can access this knowledge and take better care of themselves, or even have an early warning system uh, about okay, you should really worry about this. Uh, and get it checked out. Uh, so it is, there's some whole social dynamic that's going on there that I don't understand enough. Uh, and it's certainly, in my view, the key issue is not a technological issue. Mm. So, so I think one of the um, uh, one kind of interesting social question that this uh, interfaces with is the role of professions in society. So a lot of what we're talking about, um, the knowledge that we're talking about, is currently very closely associated with different professions. So obviously, you know, medical uh, information, diagnostic information is associated with uh, healthcare professionals, doctors especially. Um, the law and legal information is associated with lawyers. Um, you know, so, so one argument I've, that I've heard is that part of the resistance to these types of uh, technological innovations comes from the professions because they like having a monopoly on this information and it creates value for them and the ability to extract rents from society. Another argument that I've heard uh, in defense um, of the professions and um, kind of to, um, in opposition to, to more use of this type of technology is that Look, you can never replicate the, the human element. The human judgment is 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 just essential to the uh, to these professions. They perform vital social functions and vital social roles. Uh, if you were to kind of automate some of these decisions, it would it would, would result in lower quality decisions. Um, that people might um, take this information and. Uh, they wouldn't know how to use it properly, and it would result in in bad outcomes. What, what do you make of what do you make of these arguments? Uh, I, and I think I think definitely uh, the this, uh, the latter argument, the one about uh, uh, misuse of knowledge and uh, the value add of the professions, I think is a very. Uh, uh, I agree with that. Absolutely mm -hmm. agree with that. It's. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, uh, the idea certainly is not, and and I think this is some of the fear, uh, and in my view, sometimes. Uh, uh, but um, mm. so so there's this fear about what I call autonomous AI. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll take all our jobs and we'll be mm -hmm. useless. Right. Right. Uh, and I I think I think that's that's really a very uh, a crude way of looking at us and. And now uh, there's this whole um, uh, trust in the community about human-centered AI. 
and this mm -hmm. human machine cooperation and symbiosis and uh, and that's for me from my from my perspective and my stance that's where my research is going uh, I'm not going for fully aut automated or autonomous um, AI I'm going for augmented AI and so in in this way uh, I think the professions should rather see how the profession should change and how AI can be used to further the profession and take control of it. Mm -hmm. I think doing this gatekeeping actually harms the profession. It's, it's in the same way, I think, a while back, bookkeepers and accountants. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the first they had the calculator and so now they need to spend lots of time doing calculations. And then they had Excel and they were, I, I suspect it radically changed when Excel became pervasive and in the same way secretaries who used to do all the typing when word processors came on board and became pervasive and the uh, the profession adjusted and the profession uh, became uh, it became richer uh, it enabled it was enabling of course there was radical changes and it scared a lot of people uh, but I think if we didn't do that, and if you look back to, let's say, the accounting profession and the bookkeeping profession before Excel, where it was and where it is now, uh, I don't think anyone would have any regrets about it. Mm -hmm. So so, so I think it's, 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 for me, it's about fear of change um, and, and people uh, being risk averse uh, and and I and I think that's that's probably quite quite natural. Uh, so so I certainly am not uh, proposing that this change must happen in the next two years. Mm -hmm. uh, but I do think, and 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 I must say I also think the the AI practitioners and the tech people and computer scientists must also take some responsibility because uh, I think sometimes we don't communicate potential of these technologies in a practical way uh, so 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 I think we just need to start talking to each other and have I think if we know what our greater goals are like the, the benefits of it and I think more the overall society benefits of it and not just let's just you know create this kind of um, boundaries between the disciplines and, and, and then have this insular attitude uh, so, I, so I think that's where, if you had to ask me where the, uh, what I would do about this, that's probably that we should talk to each other, there should be more awareness, uh, and the question should be not whether we should embrace AI or not, the question should be what value can these technologies add to my profession, and how, what should we start doing now so that the profession in 10 or 20 years time can be richer uh, and uh, you know better than it is now. So those mm. those are the questions. Yeah, that's that, that's great. And uh, one 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 question that this this kind of that raises for me is then whether this I really like this notion of symbiosis versus autonomous systems, right? As as different ways of thinking about a path forward. And I get one question is whether this is a, a normative vision about. What, what the best thing is for people and society or whether it's a kind of an empirical uh, vision or a, a performance-driven vision. So let me just be clear about what I mean by that. 
So a performance-driven vision would be that, look, we just think the system's going to perform better if um, AI and, and humans work together for the task at hand, whatever that task at hand is. Uh, because AI and human intelligence is, or artificial and human intelligence are, are just different from each other. They have different strengths. They have different re uh, weaknesses. And we think it's just going to be the case that when humans and AI work together that it's going to deliver better results. So that would be kind of a performance-based um, rationale for a more symbiosis or a more hybrid approach. And then you can imagine a normative uh, kind of rationale, which would be, look, humans... Uh, we are the source of value. If AI does everything and, and eliminates uh, a lot of um, a lot of work from the world, or it just takes over uh, roles that human beings are comfortable with and familiar with, and that add value to human existence, that is bad uh, on its for its own sake. Even if the AI, in some sense, outperforms humans, human beings. So, for example, if um, an AI, if there was some someone invented an AI uh, poet that just produced better poetry than any human being ever could. It's not clear that that would be a, a good thing in the world if, if everyone stopped writing poetry and, and, the, and the people who read poetry just read the poetry of the AI poet. Would that, would that really be a good thing given how much value people generate um, they get out of writing poetry, right? That there's a, this expressive benefit that comes from it. So, um, so, so that broadly is the question, is, is, is this... Uh, for you, does this come more, the, the, the orientation towards a more hybrid or symbiosis style of, uh, uh, of, of collaboration, right? Is that, does that come out of a normative uh, perspective that you have about the best way for humans and machines to, to uh, operate with each other? Or is it more about um, performance and what you think is ultimately going to lead to better uh, outcomes measured on a very, you know, in, in, a, in a somewhat more concrete or narrow way? So the uh, the I, I think uh, so if you define the normative way as uh, uh, almost uh, solving the problem of the people who are scared and protective of their mm -hmm. uh, their professions, uh, for me in the long term, uh, I I don't think that's going to matter. Mm. Uh, it's 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 pretty much if you if you have a digital solution. Uh, I, I think those people uh, in the next 10 or 20 years will, will, not, will really not have jobs. Mm. I, that's the answer. Uh, and because I think that if you come up with a technology that works and can perform at the level or beyond the level of a human, uh, it's consumerism. It, it will sell and there'll be a market for it. Uh, so, so for me, I think uh, I, I wouldn't say that the the uh, the people who are scared and conservative or uh, resistant to the change would almost um, be the driving force to how the technology would work. But there is a nuance there, and this is that. Uh, so I always give this example. So my students in uh, my uh, when I teach my postgraduate students, uh, I ask them this question, uh, and I say you. You, you walk in now you in the future you, it's it's 10 years into the future and you walk into this uh, um, or you might be even sitting at home and there's a, a physical uh, diagnosis or examination thing so it's pretty much the machine uh, who's replaced the uh, your physician 
and you go in there and you know the history that it's actually Google's uh, ten generation. Uh, it's worth the, the they invested two trillion dollars into it. So it's it's far beyond anything else that has ever been on Earth. And it and, and it scans you and you picture now the scanner going through and this light going over you right. and does all these other things and it comes back and it, it, it whirs away and because it's quick it's, it happens you know quite quite fast and whirs away mm-hmm. and it says diagnosis amputate your arm right and I asked them now and I and I convince you that this is the state-of-the-art machine it's 10 generation AI it's 20 years ahead of everything that has been produced. How would you respond to that? Would you trust that decision? Uh, and of course, I mean, most people would say no. Uh, and then they'd say, no, I w- I'd want a second opinion. And then immediately they go to, I, I actually want to speak to, to an expert. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and that's really telling. So I think what, for me, the, um, that is, uh, I would say, more towards the perform. Did you say performant? Performance, yes. Performance uh, yeah. side, because yeah. it's a requirement. Mm. It's a requirement that the 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 outcome, the performance outcome, is not just a number in terms of accuracy of the result. It also requires some explanation and trust. Mm. So, so here, so. Um, so let me add a little bit to your hypo. I'm curious, curious what you um, what you think of this. Um, so imagine that this uh, this you know tenth generation Google diagnostic system. After it uh, after it renders this judgment, right? Amputate your arm. It then projects an image of you know either Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie or pick your favorite you know Hollywood actor who's who's now rendered in very high resolution um, you know photorealistic um, you know digital rendition and this person provides a very calm and uh, uh, well reasoned sounding explanation for why your arm needs to be amputated and that 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 rationale may or may not actually relate to the um, to the background algorithm that um, you know that actually produced the diagnosis, but it's intended to um, provide comfort and a sense of security uh, and confidence in the judgment of the machine. And so the you know the <laughs> the, the AI also provides this explanation, even though it's not, you know, again, it may or may not relate to the, to the predictive algorithm, but it has this other goal of essentially ensuring compliance. Uh, and, and it does so at better rates than the human experts, right? So the human experts are brought in and, you know, they don't actually do as good of a job at uh, comforting the patients and providing them with a sense of, um, you know, a sense that there's a, that there's a sound basis for the judgment. So what do you think? In that case, do we still need a human being, or or, or has the machine um, has the machine done and has it taken over the job? Absolutely. So, so so in that case, uh, and I do think there'll be some tasks that uh, that that the so so I, so I wouldn't say that. Uh, so eventually, I think that's possible. Uh, mm-hmm. But then you have to solve. Uh, you know, things have to change. That you you have to provide a. A reasonable explanation and the level of explanation that you need to provide 
for for amputate your arm needs to be much higher than take uh, right. paracetamol you know <laughs> right. I mean, uh, yeah. so you know uh, maybe 10 seconds of uh, Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie for <laughs> taking paracetamol uh, and you you'll you'll get comfort but I think you you might still want a second opinion uh, mm. for, for the other one and and then I think there's uh, there, there's some people that would uh, so, so for me because I'm very practical if they give mm-hmm. me a good explanation and I check up on that explanation and it seems rational I probably would say fine let's let's do it because I can see what the consequences are mm-hmm. uh, but other people would want the human contact right. <laughs> and, right. uh, you, you, know, you know so so uh, yeah but I think where you were heading with this is um, for certain uh, um, tasks or professions would the machine perform it fully I think that's certainly possible and so so when I when I say human-centered AI I would say that not all AI needs to be it and in fact now we've delegated uh, in fact this is an interesting thing so uh, if we look let's say back 30 years there's lots of tasks that we've delegated so if I asked, if I had to ask most people, 30 years ago, would you take directions from a machine while you drive? Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, most people would say no. Uh, right. And now it's it's flipped over Everywhere. to the other side. Right, right. I would never trust a person to give me directions. It's insane. I have Ex- to. I only listen to Google. <laughs> Correct. In fact, there's arguments. Google said this, and that is why I followed the directions. Right, so right, right, right. Yeah. So it's a it's a very interesting thing. Uh, right. And uh, so uh, so when I say uh, human-centered AI, I would say not all of AI, and certainly not all of di- digital technologies, uh, uh, will always have to have a human in the loop. Uh, but I think excluding the human in many cases uh, is only going to harm the solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so, so I I think that's uh, and in fact now I think if I to summarize is that eventually lots of tasks will become like if we look back at history. So now I'm a machine learning algorithm. If I'm using what happened in history to predict what's going to happen in the future right <laughs> lots of lots of there's definitely going to be uh, an increase in machines replacing humans for lots of tasks and, right. and and not not because it's a conspiracy it's just because it's convenient i think people will choose uh, like no one forces us to use google it works mm-hmm. so if it works and adds value to you you'll use it Yep, that's right. That's that's just human nature. I mean, the one thing I, I would say that that strikes me with the with the um, with the amputation example is that the one thing that even a very well rendered uh, Brad Pitt or Angelina Jolie can't do is offer genuine empathy. They can't. The machine doesn't. It, it, it doesn't have an arm. <laughs> it, the arm can't be amputated. A, a human doctor can put him or herself in your shoes and kind of recognize the gravity of the decision that you have to face and and internalize that and and genuinely feel empathy for you in a way that um that that you might care about and it's real empathy it's not kind of simulated empathy that you might get out of the machine and and that might matter to people yes and i think uh, different people may require uh, uh more or less of that um yeah. 
uh, and so so that's an interesting uh, area so I know I know the and of course it's simulated but I know now uh, for caregivers in old age homes mm -hmm. this seems to be one of the areas that uh, is uh, in my view the amount of resources put into that uh, th th that empathy aspect uh, mm -hmm. is probably one of the first areas uh, where which will push that aspect of kind of this machine empathy um, it's, it's because it's it's got both the companionship and building trust and uh, and I think those things are, are also linked to empathy yeah. And in fact, and uh, I, I also know some physicians who actually are not very good on the, on Absolutely. the empathy side. So. Right. Absolutely. And it's, it, maybe it's simulated empathy when they can muster it at all. So, yes. uh, yeah, again, one other example. So, well, I think we could continue talking for some time, um, but I, I think I've taken also taken enough of, of your time for today. So thanks so much for joining me today. It was a really uh, fun conversation. Thanks a lot, Michael. It's been fun, uh, and I also enjoyed it. And I also, you gave me some uh, some food for thought.